from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Calls for change in the cattle markets passed the first test. We have an update from Washington. Grain prices under pressure. There was a little bit of a shift to the weather forecast. Uh, I saw more rains in the GFS model uh, during that first week in July. Why weather and recession fears weighed heavily on the markets this week. Surprises in wheat harvest across the plains. This is not anywhere near the worst wheat crop that I've seen. And it's an inside look at one company working to become the Amazon of ag. And in John's world. Giving up nuclear power is a big mistake. Now for the news, well, two bills that called for change and could impact the entire livestock industry are now on their way to the full Senate. The Senate Ag Committee giving its stamp of approval to the Meat and Poultry Special Investigator Act, as well as the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act. But it was not a unanimous vote in that committee, with Republican Senators John Boozman of Arkansas and Roger Marshall of Kansas casting no votes. We've been following this legislation since it was first talked about. The Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act was introduced by farm state senators, including Chuck Grassley of Iowa and Deb Fisher of Nebraska, John Tester of Montana and Ron Wyden of Oregon. They argue it will improve competition and ensure more fairness through robust price discovery and transparency. And on the Meat and Poultry Special Investigator Act, proponents say it would create a new USDA office dedicated to enforcing competition rules under the Packers and Stockyards Act. Investments in genetics and breeding decisions and specialized marketing have brought real returns to ranch families that have chosen to take those steps. These investments have kept families ranching while producing high-quality beef demanded by consumers. If the incentive for those investments is taken away and the focus becomes producing the most pounds for the lowest cost, I think the industry, our ranch families, and our rural communities will all suffer. Over the past two years, we have witnessed voluntary industry efforts to increase negotiated trade. While there was some success, ultimately, by the industry's own standards, these voluntary efforts failed because of the Packers' lack of participation. That brings us here today. We know more market transparency and price discovery are needed. Senator Grassley says he is confident the full Senate will have the votes to clear the two bills. He is hoping they come up for a vote after the July break. Now, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association issuing a statement shortly after the committee vote calling the mandate bills harmful. Well, state officials are putting the number of cattle that died in a southwest Kansas heat wave last week at roughly 2,000 head. That number is based on the facilities that contacted the Kansas Department of Health and Environment for help disposing of carcasses. Surging triple-digit temperatures, no wind, and a lack of overnight cooling are what's being blamed on the deaths. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey pulled data from Dodge City, one of the oldest weather stations in the region. He says that June started out cool, with Dodge City seeing temps in the mid-40s as recently as June 2nd. Then 10 days later, while some cattle were still shedding their winter coats, a heat wave hit. 
what really caught my eye were the overnight low temperatures, especially on June 13th, when we saw Dodge City reporting an overnight low temperature of 83 degrees. That is absolutely unheard of for this part of the country. In fact, going back almost 150 years. Rippey says there's a ridge of high pressure that's set up across the majority of the country. He warns those same conditions could happen again this summer. The U.S. Supreme Court this week denying Bayer's appeal of a lower court decision involving Roundup. Germany-based Bayer asked the high court to review a $25 million verdict in favor of California man who says Roundup caused his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, adding that it shouldn't be penalized for a product determined to be safe by EPA. The company says it respectfully disagrees with the decision and says it remains fully committed to the availability of glyphosate-based ag and professional products. The government is now supporting the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation in the challenge over California's Proposition 12. NPPC and AFBF have petitioned the Supreme Court to consider the constitutionality of the animal housing law. Critics argue that the law imposes regulations that reach far outside the borders and stifles interstate and international commerce. The U.S. Solicitor General saying in a brief that California, quote, has no legitimate interest in protecting the welfare of animals located outside the state, end quote. She urged the high court to reverse the ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decision to dismiss the challenge by ag groups and send the case to the appeals court. The Proposition 12 case is scheduled to be heard on October 11th. It's reported Russian forces targeted at least two grain terminals in Ukraine this week. Canada's Viterra and U.S. grain trader Bungie confirmed their terminals were both hit. The terminals are located in the southern port city of Mykolaiv, the country's largest port. Bungie says its facility has been closed since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Viterra confirming as well its facility was hit and said at that time it was on fire. It says one employee suffered minor burns. Well, some relief from the heat, but how long do the milder temperatures stick around? We'll have a check of your forecast next. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Yurosavik. Matt, we're starting to see some relief from the heat across the country. Is there still a risk of that high heat, though, entering the picture again as we get into July? Yeah, Ty, and as we head through the month of July and even a little bit farther than that, it is looking like the warmth, the drier conditions going to stick around for at least parts of the lower 48. Let's take a look at the temperatures this week where we are going to be above normal right through uh, much of the uh, midsection of the country that's been very hot and very dry over the past week, week and a half, and even back up into the northern Rockies and down toward California. San Joaquin Valley going to stay extremely hot as we head through this week. There will be, though, chances of rain and some below normal temperatures back there in the Four Corners region, New Mexico to Arizona and parts of Texas as well. And then right along the Canadian border into the northern parts of the Midwest and northern plains could be looking at some below normal temperatures there as well. But here's a look at the July temperatures, July as a whole. And it does look like above normal really all the way up into the northeast and then back into the Four Corners region. But you can see that area highlighted 
painted in red and that's going to be much above normal, which means a very good chance of seeing at least five to 10 degrees above normal from time to time during the month of July. And that goes from northern Florida all the way through the Gulf Coast and back up into parts of Colorado and even Utah. Uh, so still watching for those temperatures and that combined with the drought Obviously, we're still watching for some drought probably going to be developing here in parts of the east as we head over the next week. But expecting more rain as we head towards the end of next week and into the month of July, right on through the northern or the western part of the Corn Belt there, and still expecting some more rain back in the west. So that could help some things out there in the Four Corners region. California, though, it's going to be extremely dry over at least the next 10 days. You can see on the root zone here a lot of uh, dry come popping up right here through the Midwest, central parts of the country, western Corn Belt there, all the way to Texas, and then. Uh, the southwest extremely dry as well. Meanwhile, starting to see those oranges and reds pop up in the mid-Atlantic and northeast and the precipitation is going to stay below normal in that part of the that neck of the woods there heading through this week above normal though in the west, which is going to be good news because those prolonged drought conditions they're going to be helped out in July as a whole, looking a little damp back there in Arizona, parts of New Mexico and along the East Coast as well, but staying below normal right there in the center part of the country. So here's a look at Monday. It's staying a little damp in the east as a cold front pushes on through the rest of the country, though, very warm, very humid, just some showers in the Four Corners region. That's going to be the same uh, story as Wednesday with another system continuing to move through the southeast. Otherwise, high pressure, warm and humid across the lower 48. And here's a look at Friday as we step into the month of July, still hot and humid in the south, warmer in the north, and just a few chances for some showers as we're heading through that first day of July. Time back to you. Thanks, Matt. Well, was a change in the weather the only factor that sent commodity prices sliding on Thursday? Joe Vaklovic and Mike North will answer that question next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Joe Vaklovic, as well as Mike North, joining me. The tone has definitely changed in the markets. I mean, last weekend, Joe, we had analysts talking about how prices, because of the heat, because of the, the forecast, that prices could possibly go to the moon when it comes to corn. This week, a much different story. Did the weather forecast truly change that much, or is there something else that's at play right now? There was a little bit of a shift to the weather forecast. Uh, I saw more rains in the GFS model uh, during that first week in July for maybe call it the western two-thirds of the Corn Belt, Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, the Dakotas. The forecast isn't perfect. It still looked dry for a lot of Illinois, a lot of Indiana, a lot of Ohio places uh, further east. But there was, uh, at least in my view, and I'm not a meteorologist, there was a material shift in the forecast. The other thing that's out there that is, is top of mind for me, maybe even more importantly than weather, is recession risk. Uh, commodity markets don't like recessions. And it appears as if we're headed towards a recession. And I think that that's a big factor that has had an influence on large speculators and the way that they behave in the markets. Well, Mike, we know this time of year that the forecast literally doesn't even change by the day. It changes by the hour in some instances. So let's say we do have that forecast change. It does take some of that rain out of the forecast for some of those key states. Do you think that could be a market mover? Well, this is always a very volatile time of the year. I mean, let's... Let's just put all our cards on the table. We, we can literally turn a market in a moment and it and it can flip on a forecast. To your point, forecasts change regularly through the course of the day. And we can, 
as we've observed in previous years, see the markets flip uh, on a changing forecast. We're moving into the end of the month. We've got some key quarterly reports coming out with acreage and grain stocks. We've got traders that have blown out uh, and you know dropped positions over the course of the last month that have now uh, some material room to, to add back into uh, some length. And you know, to Joe's point, this this recessionary discussion uh, has you know taken a grip in the market. That too can be equally a fickle discussion uh, as we're kind of feeling our way through it. So, so this is a this is a time of the year when you look for things to be volatile. It's normal to see markets move, and I think with the big uh, you know downplay that we've seen in price it kind of opens the door for some upside as we go forward, even if it's short term. Joe, could the acreage report be one of those opportunities right now? What do you think the trade is expecting for USDA to come out with next week? Uh, Everybody's going to be wrong on June 30th, as they always are. This is a report that's uh, highly unpredictable. I think that this year uh, in particular, there was probably a big shift versus March intentions. We know first off that that March report is horribly inaccurate. Uh, generally, generally speaking, the survey responses are terrible. I think there was probably some acreage uh, shifted in different areas for different reasons. Up north, uh, we may see a reduction in corn acreage because of weather. In other areas, you could see increased corn acreage versus intentions uh, because of prices. I think there's a ton of variables. I think there is, is an enormous uh, potential for a surprise, whether that's bullish, bearish, sideways, up, down, I have no idea. But I think we'll be surprised in some way, shape, or form. Um, it's it's a big report. Yeah, Mike, there are always surprises when it comes to that report. What do you think would be bullish and what do you think would be bearish? Well, obviously, as you look at the landscape, there's a lot of discussion of about a million acres flipping from you know corn to beans. To Joe's point, I, I think there's a lot of regionally, uh, regional variance to that. And so I agree with him that, you know, likely people are going to be wrong in some capacity. Um, whether we add more beans or add more corn remains to be seen. But I think all the way around, uh, you've got a setup right now that um, allows for uh, the surprise to maybe favor corn a little bit. Um, bottom line is that, you know, we've been talking about this big departure away from corn. Um, you know, that, that number is going to be watched really, really closely because I don't see that uh, in the Midwest as, as, as much as I might in the, in the Northwest, as Joe, Joe pointed out. But let's not also forget about the stocks report. You know, that, that report's over the last couple of years been known for a few surprises of its own. And, you know, giving all, given all of the, the, the tug of war, if you will, across the major demand fronts, um, you know, there's room for a lot of shuffling as we've looked at $8 corn uh, with regard to corn utilization and feed. Uh, that number could be a little bit of a shocker. Well, there's a lot more to talk about from demand to also what's going on with these cash cattle prices. We will cover it all with Joe and Mike coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Enzone from Farm Shop MFG, which allows you to rehydrate your soybeans from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's an extra semi-load added to your bottom line. Order your Enzone fan by July 31st and get $200 off. The effort to abandon nuclear power continues to gain steam, but there may be some miscalculations in doing so. John Phipps explains in John's World this week. All over Europe, 
countries are closing down operating nuclear power plants. While this has been going on some time, it has now become clear the decision to overstate nuclear's minuscule risks and assume greener power sources would be there to replace them was wildly inaccurate. Angela Merkel, perhaps one of the greatest German leaders to date, has seen the afterglow of her years in office overshadowed by the truly dangerous German dependence on Russian natural gas as a result of her push to abandon nuclear power. A questionable environmental decision has thus emerged as a geopolitical threat. The U.S. is on a similar path with the twilight of this dependable power source already taking place. Meanwhile, China is speeding ahead with the goal of 150 plants by 2030, which is as much as the U.S. and France combined, although that still only uh, will provide a fraction of their power needs. Nuclear power has trivial CO2 emissions, and yes, this chart includes mining, manufacturing, and decommissioning costs. It is also demonstrably safer compared to other power sources. All the dire predictions have proven false, even factoring in the extraordinary failures like Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. In what I can only describe as hysteria by the public surrounding nuclear technology, overblown fears have replaced years of solid results in the minds of global citizens. The link from radioactive to radioactivity to bizarre impacts on humanity is the stuff of comedy, from the fish in Lake Springfield on The Simpsons to the Spider-Man's origin via a radioactive spider bite. The often condescending dismissal of such nonsensical perceptions added a major blunder to a half-hearted public relations campaign by the nuclear industry. Politicians thought we had time and expertise to replace this power source. Many of their voters made supporting nuclear power a small win, big loss type of decision. Extremism at both ends of the spectrum from fussy progressives unclear on the concept of inescapable trade-offs to short-sighted climate deniers on the right content with a threat seemingly too far in the future to take responsibility for, we have looked gift power in the mouth and walked away. There is foolishness uh, enough to go around regarding this choice, but the result will cripple our efforts to control carbon emissions and even preserve our democracy. Thanks, John. And remember, you can watch more of John's commentary on our YouTube page. Well, we need to take a quick break. And the Machinery Feet has tractor tails this weekend. That is next. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we are headed to Fenville, Michigan to check out a classic John Deere 60. The only thing I know about is it's been somewhat in the family for about 10 or 12 years now. Don't know who the original owner was. We do know it was sold at the local dealership in Fenville in 55, brand new. Well, they didn't build very many of them in the 60 Orchard. It was kind of the successor to the styled AO. Only made about 274 gasoline only models between 1953 and 1956. In 53, they just redesigned it for the model change. They Updated some things, but not too much. They changed the front hubs, the headlight positioning, and they came factory with a distributor instead of a magneto. Picked it up, 
like 10 to 12 years ago and restored it and brought it back to its glory. It looks a little more like futuristic and aerodynamic. Yeah, I think it was used in an apple orchard most of its life. With this lower profile design, it could easily swoosh all the branches over your head so you didn't get hit with them and get the job done a little more efficiently. Currently, it's just a show and toy tractor. It's last I seen it worked was back in 2020, disc a 12 acre field with it, disc and plow. You just can't resist that two cylinder sound. It's just not forgettable, it's easy to remember, and like you can hear it miles away and say, hey, that's a John Deere two cylinder. Still to come, with concerns about the world running out of wheat, we travel to the plains to get a first-hand look at harvest that may be drawing focus now on a world stage. That's next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. USDA reports the winter wheat harvest is running slightly ahead of average at 25% complete. Even with recent rains, fewer bushels in the fields have allowed combines so far to sweep across the fields faster. While USDA will update world wheat stocks in its report next week, Grow Intelligence says their data shows that in the world, we just have 10 weeks worth of global wheat consumption in storage. And as concerns about running out of wheat remain on the world stage, we head to the fields in the plains to get a first-hand look at U.S. winter wheat harvest this week. The start of summer also ushers in the steady rhythm of wheat harvest across the plains. What typically is a picture-perfect setting of beauty from amber waves of grain is one that signifies the struggles of this past year for Texas wheat farmers. Here in the Texas Panhandle, farmers saw only a half of an inch of rain during the heart of the growing season. And as a result, yields are poor in the fields that did survive. I wasn't farming during the drought of 2011, so uh, I started it in 2014, but I would say this is one of, if not the worst wheat crop I've had, uh, simply due to lack of rain. Our last rain that we saw was in the fall and we didn't get anything in the spring. Then it started raining again toward the end of May, but that was too late for our wheat crop. So this is one of the worst. Just to the north, Oklahoma's wheat harvest has been in full swing for about two weeks. About everything's made over 30. And then there are some fields that were hit harder by drought. We'll probably get into some that's quite a bit worse than that before it's over. Clint Wilcox farms in the northwest portion of Oklahoma. He says yields have been a bit surprising. This is not anywhere near the worst wheat crop that I've seen. I think 2011 and 2018 were much worse here. The wheat crop is still 40% below the strong harvest farmers saw in this part of Oklahoma last year, but it's not as bad as it could be. I'm not sure how this one pulled through as well as it did, but the few rains that we had were just timely enough. Across the state, wheat harvest is basically border to border. Farmers are hustling to get the crop out after some of Oklahoma saw 11 inches of rain in May. 
Right now we're in central Oklahoma. We're fighting humidity, so we're not starting till midday. Brian Arnold is an Oklahoma State Extension Precision Nutrient Management Specialist. He says the weather has thrown some curveballs this year. More of our western regions can run. We are getting some great nights. We've got nice wind, and so our humidity is dropping down, and we can run from about noon or 1 o'clock to 9 or 10 at night. And the dryness early on took a toll on overall yields. Harvest reports are marginal, and I'm getting some good protein numbers, but yields, people are more excited about reporting proteins than they are yields this year. Arnold says Oklahoma's wheat yields are mixed, but the research farms where he's harvesting are producing yields 50 to 60% below average. So where I want, you know, 70, 80 bushel, 90 bushel, I'm cutting 40 to 50 bushel. Test weights are also all over the board, but the rains a month ago were followed by intense heat and that created more work. Honestly, we had some issues with a lot of tillering because of moisture brought in tillers. Uh, the heat coming in has helped us finish off those tillers quickly, basically terminate them so we can get in. While the battle is never ending, Wilcox is thankful to have a crop to harvest this year. My bushels per hour aren't a whole lot different than they were a year ago. I'm just driving two and a half times as fast. And even with wheat prices double what farmers saw last year, the farm financial picture isn't all upbeat. We're just glad to, to be cutting further west than for me in Altus and those areas and Hollis. I have nothing to complain about. It really hurts to not have a crop whenever you have a good price. And so uh, we just hope for a better year for everybody next year. Weather may have knocked out wheat yields, but it's now reviving hope for their spring planted crops this year. Now, one of the issues that wheat farmers are pointing out is the lack of lines at some elevators simply because there's not as much grain coming in this year. Also, some custom harvesters are missing out on work this year that they rely on every single year. Well, when we come back, grain supplies are drawing attention, but what about demand? Our marketing roundtables are next. It's time to sign up for the 2022 United Pork Americas Conference in Orlando, Florida. Register today at unitedporkamericas.com and join us September 7th through the 9th. Joining us again, Joe Vaklovic, as well as Mike North. Joe, basis has been phenomenal as of late. Is that a sign that even though we have seen these stronger commodity prices, that we are not seeing demand destruction yet? Yeah, the cash market's really fantastic in some areas of the country. It's it's not everywhere, but there's a lot of areas with uh, positive corn basis in particular. And I think we'll find out a little bit more on June 30th about that situation. Uh, what are the grain stocks? Where are they located? Uh, why is it so tough for, say, an ethanol plant to procure uh, corn, even when uh, cash is, you know, $8 or better. It's really a phenomenal situation and it is an underlying positive uh, in regard to the markets. Now, that doesn't mean that the board has to rally from here, but I'd, I'd say it's a supportive factor. Well, speaking of that strong basis, Mike, we're hearing some feed users like in Texas having to pay $3 over the board just to source grain. How wide is that situation and how many people is that impacting at this point? We've been incredibly dry in the South and the West. Feed is becoming more scarce. Water is already scarce. There's allocations in California uh, for usage. It's, it's a difficult situation and it's only getting worse because as these allocations for water 
uh, continue to shrink uh, the capacity to grow crops. Uh, we're taking a, uh, a feed pile that has already been running light and making it lighter. So to keep your operations running and to keep animals fed, you are paying up. And it is a, it's a pretty tough place to be right now uh, if you're in any of those droughty areas that have been droughty for the better part of two years. So when we talk about the road ahead, you know, what's going on in the Midwest will have, you know, big ripple effects as you work further out into the West, into the South. Um, and, you know, that becomes further complicated by rail car shortage and labor shortage and all of the other, you know, peripheral things that wrap themselves around just pure supply discussions. Yeah, at the same time, Joe, you know, this week we're seeing some strong cash cattle trade. Uh, you know, does that have anything to do with the grain markets that we're seeing uh, or are there other factors that play there? I think the fundamentals of the cattle market are just uh, really not that bad. You wouldn't know that by looking at the board and, and some of the activity that we've seen there this week. It's almost like you're, you're seeing similar things in, uh, say, the grain markets that you're seeing in the cattle market with this positive basis situation. Uh, there is speculative money and outside money that I think just wants no part of, of the long side of these markets. And if, if they're going to liquidate futures and the cash market stays strong, I, I guess that that could happen for a little while here. You could see that that kind of a divergence between cash and the board. Just because there's outside money that wants out, that doesn't necessarily mean the cash market has to fall apart. Um, these are deliverable contracts in the case of you know corn and, and live cattle, but it doesn't have to matter necessarily until you get a little bit closer to that delivery period or into those delivery periods. You know, Mike, you mentioned dairy producers in the West having trouble sourcing feed. Are you concerned at all that this talk about a recession that's really weighing heavily on the grain markets, do you think that could potentially be a major headwind for milk prices too? Over time, yes. Um, dairy has done very well uh, in recessionary times, often because as we've gone through them, people will trade down their proteins, if you will. They might not go out for a steak, but they may still order a pizza into the house. And, you know, the more cheese that we move, the more dairy that we move in those capacities, the better it is. Um, right now, the recessionary discussion around dairy is a concern. And when you look at ice cream sales, which have been dropping, which, you know, we consider that the luxury item uh, in the dairy case, if you will, um, that has been showing signs of, of, of recessionary pressure. People have been backing away from ice cream. And as we head towards summer, that is a concern. All right, Joe, bottom line, whether you're a seller of grain or a buyer of feed, what do you need to keep in mind right now? There's a tremendous amount of risk in both directions. Weather forecasts can turn on a dime and bring the markets along with them. At the same time, I think you've got a Federal Reserve and central banks that are essentially they're trying to induce a recession. They won't say that, but that's what they're trying to do. They need to reduce economic activity in order to reduce inflation. Um, they they don't even care if unemployment rises by one or two percent, I don't think, at this point in time. Uh, so that you've got so many risks. I mean, is the recession the bigger thing or is the fact that we're short grain in some places the bigger thing? Is money flow the bigger thing or um, uh, do fundamentals and Ukraine and things along those lines went out. I really don't know. I've never seen anything like this before. Um, just try to have an idea of your risk profile, know where you stand. Um, if things work, lock them up because, you know, these, these markets can move 
uh, dollars a bu- dollars per bushel in grains in, in the course of a week. It's it's possible and it's in both directions. All right, Mike, Joe, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Supply chain challenges continue to plague farmers, but concerns about getting necessary inputs like crop chemicals forced some farmers earlier this year to do something they had never tried in the past. See if they could find that product online. That's as one company works to almost become the Amazon of Ag. We're in Brighton, Colorado. Uh, This is what we would call a primary fulfillment center. Walk into this warehouse that sets just outside of Denver. This is a true e-commerce business. This is a direct-to-farm business. And you'll find one of FBN's largest fulfillment centers to date. So what this building represents are all the speed, all the reliability, all of the the ease of, of ordering and the ease of delivery that people have come to expect in other segments. Jack Cox, the vice president of global fulfillment and logistics for FBN, is one of the masterminds behind this place. The days of being limited by only what's in your local brick and mortar facility on your farm are, are over. We have the ability to get you really anything you want quickly, reliably, um, and so I think that's I think that's what this really represents. While the concept seems simple, this is one of five across the country. Each serves as a primary hub for storing ag inputs and products sold by FBN, all of which can be sourced and priced online. We have a lot of automation when that order comes in. It gets assigned to this building through our systems. That is all automated and happens. Uh, often within 15 minutes of an order being cleared through our approval process. Since it was founded in 2014, FBN's model and philosophy has met strong resistance among major seed and chemical manufacturers, ag retailers, and even some farmers. We've been told that FBN won't work from the beginning um, for every possible reason and every time uh, we said don't discount farmers. Charles Barron is a co-founder of FBN with an MBA from Harvard and a previous career in Silicon Valley with Google. It wasn't until he met his future brother-in-law, who's a Nebraska farmer, that he got a taste for agriculture. What I would say Amazon has done is it's taught the world what to expect. When I click the button, that product's going to show up two days later, and then I can always see what the price is. So those are great things that exist in the consumer world that don't exist in agriculture. And Cox used to work for Amazon. He saw how even that business transitioned and grew. This has happened in every e-commerce segment. This was Amazon 20 years ago, right? Same, Same thing. Um, was that, you know, Amazon, when they first started, you could still call and, and like a catalog and give them your credit card and order up uh, a number, right, instead of doing it online. So you ease people into it, but once they get it, they get it, and, and, and the future is inevitable. While FBN has changed how agricultural inputs are priced and sold, the company stores those products in one of five large fulfillment centers like this, but then also sends product to satellite locations across the U.S. So Hayes, Kansas, for example. And so Hayes has some inventory there. So you can you can order, you can have an order delivered from Hayes uh, locally. And as soon as that happens, we're going to replenish from the inventory here. But data shows most farmers aren't sold on the idea of buying crop inputs online. Farm Journal has conducted an e-commerce survey since 2018, and it shows while 8% of farmers purchased crop inputs online in 2018, in 2021, that number had only climbed to 14%. That's because 80% say they are satisfied with their current input provider. And when farmers are considering purchasing crop inputs, the survey found price continues to be the number one factor, followed by availability and ease of purchasing along with delivery. As e-commerce adoption in ag remains slow, FBN has also changed up its original model. And it's not all online. 
FBN now has a field based sales organization that works directly with farmers. We're not saying, hey, it's all online now. You've got to go sit online to, to work with us. We're going to we're going to ease you into it. But for farmers looking to get a product last minute in the middle of planting season, Cox says that's where FBN is different. You're a farmer and you're in uh, northwest Nebraska. You're going in to look at your cart and you pick this item and it's here in our Brighton facility. It's going to say we will deliver this on. Typically, you know, you can see one or two days on that for, for that grower who's fairly close to this facility. Even with Cox's experience at Amazon, selling and delivering ag inputs is very different than what happens in the consumer world, which is also why FBN launched its own fleet this year. The rural environment, you know, the address isn't necessarily the shed where the farmer wants his product. Uh, the roads might not be always clearly marked. It, 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 there's a lot of challenges there. We, we, we figured it was best to kind of jump the gap ourselves, put our own trucks on the road, really manage that delivery experience ourselves and, and, and just offer something that's just not available in the market. From manufacturing some of its own chemicals like glyphosate and glufosinate to now moving more of the purchasing of crop production inputs online, Cox says none of it has been easy or cheap. We have to execute. And, and that's always key, but everything we are building, the network we're building, the technology we're building, the people we're hiring are all pointed in that direction to deliver that. But he believes it's those investments helping FBN become the Amazon of ag. Now, there are several ag retailers who are now working to digitize their business. A handful of those have an e-commerce option for farmers. But our partners at The Scoop tell us the number of retailers offering e-commerce today is growing by the month. Up next, do you know what may help the seed sourcing issue out west? Well, 600 bushel corn, of course. Customer support is next. 600 bushel the acre. Seriously? What's the secret behind some of those monster yields that we see in the National Corn Growers Contest every year? John Phipps has customer support this week. From Yvonne Kepke in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Grew up on a farm in the 1970s in Will County, Illinois. Yield for corn was not more than 100 bushels per acre. Can you explain how 600 bushel yields is possible to me? Fertilizer was dry and cow manure was used. Yvonne, well, thanks for the memories and the question and for sending your address. The short answer is I have no idea how that jaw-dropping yield was accomplished for the National Corn Yield Contest. Certainly farmers are using vastly more productivity tools like chemical fertilizers, uh, pesticides, and improved genetics, not to mention astonishingly accurate and rapid machinery. I do have some ideas on what such records might mean and the nature of this competition. This chart shows the NCYC top yields back to 2008. It was surprisingly hard for me to get any older data. Notice a couple of things. After drawing in some approximate trend lines, I just did them by hand, the over 600 bushel the acre yields were a significant jump. Both were accomplished by the same person, David Hula in Virginia. While certainly not just a fluke, it is an amazing statistical disruption in the NCYC yield trends. Corn yield contestants share some, but I doubt, all their secrets publicly. After all, there are financial gains to be made. Not from the contest itself, but the seed, fertilizer, machinery, and pesticide companies love to find winners who use their products. 
endorsements, speaking fees, maybe most important of all, a moment in the spotlight of fame drive contestants to extremes needed to achieve such results. How much trickle-down effect it has for ordinary growers like me is less clear. In fact, national corn yields over the last few years are virtually flat, while yield, contestant, or yield contest winners are soaring over old records. I think it is just the nature of such biggest, fastest, longest type competitions which simply appeals to people. I can't help but compare the NCYC yields to those monster pumpkin contests around the globe. Okay, I'll grant that it, they are enormous, but it didn't keep us from running short of pumpkin occasionally for Thanksgiving pies during the last few years. Thanks, John. And you can catch more of John's segments on our Farm Journal YouTube page. Up next, the need for speed in words, that is. We have the World Livestock Auctioneer Champion next. You're watching the 2022 World Livestock Auctioneer Champion in action. Will Epperly of Dunlap, Iowa was named the champion at the 58th annual competition held at Shipshawana Auction and Trading Place in Shipshawana, Indiana. It was put on by the Livestock Marketing Association. This was Epperly's 12th year competing at the event. Epperly clearly moved by the honor. He says he is a self-taught livestock auctioneer. As the new champion, Epperly will spend the next year traveling the country sharing his auctioneering skills with other livestock auction markets and acting as a spokesperson on behalf of the livestock marketing industry and the LMA. All that hard work paying off. Congratulations. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.